0: Good morning, Church. How you doing today? Awesome. Hey, it's so great to see so many of you here on campus, and uh, man, it's just this place is filling up. It's exciting to see. So great to have you joining us online today as well. Uh, today we kick off a new series called Revealed, and in this series we are taking a look at the Book of Revelation. So I know that right off the bat, some of you are like, "Eh," because Revelation. It's scary to you. I know for some of you, you're like, oh, man, Revelation, that's all about, like, the end of the world and destruction and evil rulers and, like, nuclear bombs and, uh, I don't know about that. Some of y'all are like, oh, yeah, Revelation. Because you dig that stuff. Like, you, you just get into it. But here's the deal. I just want to kind of level set some things right off the bat. I, I, think, I think the reason some of y'all are afraid of it is because you've been taught to approach it the wrong way. He even taught to approach it with fear, and that's not what Revelation knows. Actually, Revelation is a book of hope. It's a book of hope. See, the driving question of Revelation, how we approach this book of Revelation, should not be, and it is not, God did not intend for it to be, what does Revelation tell me about all the details and dates of the end of time? Actually, the driving question of Revelation is this. What can Revelation tell me about being a faithful follower of Jesus all the time. At any time. That's what we're chasing after. That's the question we got to answer. Not how it all ends, but what does it mean for us in the right now? What does God want for us to be faithful? Because there is something for us. If we are faithful to Jesus to the end, no matter what, then there are things that come our way from that. Like hope and blessing. Like a life of joy and peace with Jesus Forever. That's what this is about. So we're going to spend a few weeks getting the big picture view of Revelation. And we'll dive down deep a few times and take a look at some more of the details. We we can't just go big picture. But regarding those details, I do want to, again, do a little level set up front. Because it's my contention that if I'm going to disappoint somebody, I just want to get it down and over with up front. So here we go. I'm going to level set the expectations for what we're going to do in this series. And I'm just going to disappoint you now, if that's okay with you. So I know that some of you, you want me to give you the exact day, date, and time down to the second when Jesus is coming back. Problem is, the Bible doesn't give that to us. Jesus said none of us would know that, so it just doesn't seem wise for us to even pursue that. Some of you, you want to know like the detailed chronology of the events of Revelation and how they all play out in sequence. Again, the problem is Revelation doesn't really give that to us, so we're just not going to pursue that. Some of you, you want to know if the helicopters in Revelation 9 are military helic- or sorry if the locusts in revelation 9 i almost messed up but the locusts in revelation 9 are military helicopters and if so which country is flying them again revelation doesn't spin in those waters so neither will we and i know the big question right it's kind of twofold the two big questions who's the antichrist and what's the mark of the beast we're actually going to cover that we'll get into that one but adjust those expectations Because when we get there, it might be very different than what you anticipate. Now, with that being said, I also want to say this. There are a handful of ways we can approach Revelation. And and there are people who, like, there's really three major camps of approaching Revelation. We're not going to get into all those details. But I will say this. There are people who approach Revelation from different perspectives, who have a fierce devotion to Jesus. They love him, and they're giving their lives to serve him and to grow his kingdom. And so what that means is we can approach Revelation in different ways and still agree on our service to Jesus. In fact, I'd tell you, some of the people who approach Revelation in very different ways than me are some of my best friends. So it's kind of funny to me, in fact, because... Two of the areas where Christians tend to disagree, especially these days, is with the beginning and the end. With Genesis and Revelation, how did it all start, and how long did it take, and how's it all going to wrap up at the end? Was it literal six days? Was it a longer period of time? How's it all going to play out at the end? What's the sequence of events? But here's the deal. None of us were there at the beginning. And none of us said, I don't think, I mean, there are a couple old people in the room, but you're not that old, right? So like, none of us are there in the beginning, and none of us have yet to see the end. So because of that, we should all study Scripture. We should all look deeply into it and learn what it says. And we should formulate our convictions based on Scripture. But way more than what we think about the details of the beginning and the details of the end, we should agree on the big picture. That God owns the beginning and God owns the end. That God's in charge. He is now. He always has been. He always is going to be. And so the details are far secondary, and I can't stress this enough. The details are secondary to the big picture. How long it took is not nearly as important as the fact that God owned the process. How it's going to shake out in the end is not nearly as important as that God owns that part of it too. And so, while we hold to our convictions, let's hold even more tightly and more ferociously to a commitment to unity. I mean, after all that was Jesus' prayer in the garden that we would be unified even beyond those details and let's approach it all with humility so that's just kind of the level set up front let's approach it with humility and let's approach it with just with humility and let's look at the big picture so first things first as we approach the book of Revelation we need to know what we're reading what type of literature we're coming to because it is literature the type of writing we're digging into because that matters it's called genre. What genre it is, and, and we deal with genre all the time. All of us do. Like, how many guys in here, and, and gals too, who go to Buffalo Wild Wings on occasion to watch a game? Anybody with me there? Right, so you show up to Buffalo Wild Wings, and let's say they're playing a Hallmark movie on the TVs. Not okay. In fact, I'm just going to give you a secret. If I show up anywhere and they're playing a Hallmark movie on the TV, it's just not okay. Alright, that's just like why, but. If I'm going there, like they have forgotten the type of establishment they are. It's a sports place, right? I go there to watch my Bears, Chicago Bears, beat other NFL teams. I go there for that purpose. It does not always get accomplished, but I go there for that purpose, right? Similarly, if you still read the newspaper, or maybe you have a digital copy of the paper, and, and you're reading the business section, and you're reading the comics that are sometimes in there, hopefully you read those in a different way. Because if you approach the business section reading it as comics, eh, it might be dangerous for you. Right? So we, we approach things differently. We, we come at it with a different, because it's a different kind of thing. For example, if my wife gives me a grocery list and I read it like a love letter, that's weird. I'm just, that's weird. If she gives me a love letter and I approach it like a grocery list, I'm a jerk. And that's not good either. So we've got to know what we're reading because that determines how we read it. That determines the way we should approach it. The good news is Revelation tells us right away what we are reading. Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. This is a revelation right away. We see, okay, Revelation is a revelation, and we'll explain this in a moment. It's a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. Soon take place. We'll get to the timing in the coming weeks. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. So God the Father gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. And the angel is now giving it to John, who reported faithfully reported everything he saw. And this is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So we're off about, we know it's at least a combination of two things. It's revelation and it's prophecy. So we've got to understand what we're reading and God blesses the ones who read these words of the prophecy. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. Again, we'll get to the timing in the coming weeks. But there's a blessing if we listen and obey, if we do what God is instructing us to do. He goes on in this. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's a letter. So it's revelation, it's prophecy, and it's letter. So we've got to unpack what that means. Because revelation. Uh, like, what are we getting at? It's not a style of writing that we use too commonly here in our day and time. But let me tell you what this is. Revelation is apocalypse. Now, that's kind of redundant, to be honest with you. And some of you, you hear the word apocalypse, you're like, ah, explosions, end of the world. Uh, Get that out of your mind. That's not what that word means in the Greek. From the original language, when John was penning this, apocalypse or apocalypsis, the Greek word he used there is the word that we translate revelation. That's all it means. An apocalypse is to reveal. It's to pull back the curtain. It's to unveil. It's to show us something. It's you're opening a present, like my nephew did last night for his birthday. You open up a present, you see something there you did not see before. It's an unveiling, a revealing. That's all revelation is: is God revealing something to His people. Now, this was a style of writing very common for about a hundred years. Um, before, uh, the 100 years before Jesus until about 100 years after Jesus. It was a Jewish style of writing predominantly, but even beyond the Jews, there were other uh, apocalyptic literature and, and revelations, and, and it's just a style of writing. Kind of like if you go back in American history not too far, there was a genre, a style of writing called Old Western. You get these dime store paperback Western novels, and you knew, you just knew you were going to expect certain things. Uh, a, cowboy hero and native americans and guns and horses and it was going to be set out west and definitely not taking place in new york city and i mean you just knew what you were getting into when you read that if you read a romance all right so revelation was the same way they knew what they were getting into when they read a revelation and, and apocalyptic literature uses signs and symbols and, and not like coded and secretive that you got to figure it all out but signs and symbols that would be common to the people reading it so they would know this is what this is about In fact, John does quite a bit of that. He references signs and symbols and imagery from almost every single Old Testament book. And he's writing to these Jewish Christians who he just expected would be familiar with the Old Testament and know what he's talking about. So, he gives them a picture, right? That that, that means that Revelation is more a picture book than a puzzle book. It is not some secretive code that we got to figure out and dig into the mysteries and it wasn't understood back then and we can understand it now to help us understand how the end of the world is going to happen. That's just not what revelation is. It's not what it does. Revelation is a big picture from God, from a heavenly perspective on what's going on in this world then, now, and always. That's it. It's the big picture view of it. And so some people will say, well, so should I read it literally? Literally. Or should I read it naturally? Or sorry, should I read it literally or should I read it figuratively? And I would say read it naturally. Kind of gave you that one ahead of the game. Literally? Does it mean exactly what I'm reading on the page? Is this, you know, no. Oh, so is it all figurative? Well, no, we read it naturally. Just like if I were to write a poem to my wife. And I would say you have teeth as white like winter snowflakes. And your eyes blue like the summer skies. And lips red like beautiful roses and, and hair, and like the autumn weed. I'm going to get in trouble for this later, I guarantee you. But if I were to do that, my wife were to read that literally and like draw a self-portrait based on that description, it's kind of a weird-looking person, right? She didn't read it literally. Take it for what it is. It's a, it helps us get a picture of it. We're, we're figurative with things. We, we, we read things naturally all the time. We, we just do this. If I tell somebody it's running cats and dogs, well, hopefully it's not literal, like, I mean, that's terrifying, right? Like, we don't want that. No, no, But you just know it's raining really badly. If we, we could be figurative with our numbers. If I say I ate a ton of cookies, I hope I'm not being literal that I ate 2,000 pounds of cookies. Though at this point in my life, I probably have accomplished that. Probably more than once. But we don't, we don't mean like, oh, yeah, there was 2,000 pounds, and I consumed all of that once. If, if I give you the numbers 9-11, that means something to you in this culture. If I give you July 4th, That means something to you in this culture. If I give you colors, red, white, and blue, it means something. If I talk about donkeys Donkeys and elephants, that's going to mean something to you as animals. If I talk about a bald eagle, that has a national symbolism for us. These things mean something to us. And if I were to write a note, especially around election time, using some of those things, you'd know exactly what I was talking about. But Somebody from a different culture and a different time would have to learn what those things mean. Right? So... Revelation is a revelation. It's a revealing. Revelation is also a prophecy. That's one of the things John tells us. It's, it's a prophecy. He who hears and reads these words and obeys them. Now, some of you hear prophecy and you think, oh, that's predictive of what's to come. And it is. It predicts usually what's to come in the near future. It could also point to what's maybe coming down the road a ways. But it's not only predictive. Prophecy. Let let me give you a biblical definition of of prophecy. That prophecy is a message from God to his people, delivered through his messenger, the prophet, to deliver either warning or comfort to his people. The warning is, if you don't follow me, then bad things will happen. Here's what that will look like. The comfort is, if you are with me, then no matter what happens, you're going to be just fine because you're with me. That's every prophecy in Scripture. And so John is writing this as a prophecy. He's standing in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah. And he quotes them and he references them. In fact, he, he culminates all of them, like in this climactic picture of everything they've talked about. Let me, let me show you how this all plays out now for us. And John gives us this prophecy And it stands in this tradition of those prophets. Lastly, Revelation is a letter written by a real guy named John, at a real time, the end of the first century, at a place, a real place, Patmos, an island, to real people, the churches, for a very specific real reason. So a real person, in real time, in a real place, under real circumstances, writing to other real people, real places, for real circumstances. Why I say that is if we remove it from that context and we just read it from a 21st century perspective and say, oh, this is what I think this means, we'll miss it and we'll get it wrong. And we do that with anything. We must first with anything. And this just goes with anything, but in the Bible or not, you've got to understand what it was doing in its original context. When we take things out of context, we can make it say whatever we want it to say. And that's dangerous. It might be convenient sometimes, but it's dangerous. Because we'll miss what it was actually intended to say. And especially so with the Bible. So we've got to understand what it meant to the original audience in the original time first before we can extrapolate what it means for us at this time. We'll have a much deeper, greater, and truer meaning of what it means for us if we understand what it meant for them. So with that in mind, let's dig in to what God told Jesus to tell the angel to tell John. This is what John saw. It says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. He went on. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. Brum, Sorry, that's the best trumpet I got for you. Just, you know, it's what you get. And I heard this blast. And it said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I heard this voice and it told me to write it down, so I'm writing it down. And it said, send it to these churches. Now, why these seven churches in this order? Some people would say, well, each one of these churches represents a different era of church history down through the ages. Problem is, in the style of writing, in the context of what John is doing, there's no evidence for that. In fact, we've got to do some really weird things to the Bible and impose that on the Bible. Because the Bible just doesn't come out and say that. that. That's really not clear. That's not what he's getting at. In fact, if we look at a map, we see why those places at that time. You start in Patmos for John, and you make your way around the Roman postal route. Now, this is the legit way of the Romans. This was the actual postal route for the Roman Empire. Take it to these people first, make a copy, then send it on to that one, make a copy, then send it on, make a copy, and so on and so forth. And then you make the loop. Now, why seven? Why, why just these seven? Well, we got to understand, it's symbolism. Seven is a symbol of wholeness, completeness, fullness, and perfection. Think the seven days of creation. And John uses seven all the way through the book of Revelation. So these seven churches and not only those seven churches. It's not just for them, forget about all the other churches. No, 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 no. This is for all God's people all the time. Those seven churches represent the whole of God's church everywhere around the world. That's the symbolic picture he's giving us, that it's completion of his church. Not just them. I mean, all you got to do is read the book of Acts, and you'll see there's several other churches. Obviously, God wanted them to hear some of this as well. And we also got to understand who. Who's writing this? John. John is in his 90s. John was a friend of Jesus way back in the day. Like maybe even the best friend of Jesus during Jesus' ministry years. And so here John has been preaching and teaching and helping churches and leading churches and planting churches for 60 years, six decades. And he gets in trouble through the Roman Empire and he's exiled to this place called Patmos, this rocky, craggy, unpleasant island in the Mediterranean. If you're going to take a Mediterranean vacation, you're not going there salt mines. He might even have been forced to work in the salt mines. So there's John, at 90 years old, stuck in this place as a prisoner. Why? Because Domitian, the Roman ruler, the emperor, was a hothead. And, And Domitian did not like people who opposed him. In fact, there were once 20 senators who opposed him, and he killed all of them. Three of them were close relatives, like buddy relatives. But they opposed him, so he killed them. He was brutal. He was mean. He was nasty. And he said, we're going we're to worship the Roman pantheon, this, this group of Roman gods, but we're adding one to it, me. Domitian wanted everyone to worship him as God. And the Christian said, we ain't down with that. We serve one God, Father, Son, Spirit, the triune God. We serve Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're not serving you. And he said, okay, we're going to come after you. And suddenly Rome became the most dangerous place on earth for Christians. And they were persecuted. The Roman authorities could ruin your lifestyle. They could ruin your business. They could destroy your reputation. They could come after you and harass you and beat you up and rough you up and arrest you and kill you. Simply because you're a Christian. That's it. So in light of this persecution, and all of a sudden persecution was just rampant in the Roman Empire. People were coming after the Christians, and they were using Christians as scapegoats. Anything that went wrong, was us blame it on them. So Christians took to two different things they were doing. Either they hid out in fear for their lives, and they literally hid underground building catacombs. You may have heard of the catacombs. Building these caves underground where they could worship secretively without fear of being caught. Where they could bury their dead with ceremonies that would honor their God and honor the ones they loved without getting in trouble. So they would cower and hide in fear, or they would just say, I'm just going to blend in. Maybe they won't know I'm a Christian. So maybe I'll just look like my neighbor, and I'll talk like my neighbor, I'll do the things my neighbor does, eat and drink what he does, I'll read what he does, I'll watch what he does, I'll be just like them, and nobody will really know that I'm a Christian. And the problem with that is, maybe God won't know you're a Christian either. Like, are you for God? Are you not? Are you like, what? And so it's in that context that john receives the revelation from jesus in this context of persecution of hiding or blending in and so let's dig into this because when i turned to see who was speaking remember he heard this trumpet he turns to see who it is he says and i saw seven gold lampstands now he tells us later on in verse 20 these lampstands are the church I saw seven lampstands. I saw the church, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. All right, let's just pause there. Like the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a phrase Jesus used to describe himself, came from the Old Testament prophets. He used it for himself. He is the Son of Man. But he's not just the Son of Man here. He's like the Son of Man. There's something grander, greater beyond. He's recognizable as Jesus, but there's something magnificent about him. And notice where he is standing. In the middle of the churches. In the middle of the churches, while they're undergoing terrifying persecution, where they're being routed from their homes and killed and slaughtered and tortured and hunted like animals. And Jesus is right there in the middle with them. He has not abandoned his church and he never will. He is not an abandoning God. He's here with us. And so he stands right there with them. And then... Says I was wearing, or he was wearing a long robe with gold sash across his chest. There he is standing in the middle of his church wearing this, this sash and this, this gold robe. A picture of king and priest with them. He has authority. He is to be worshiped. He's magnificent. He is majestic. He is the authority. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Was Jesus prematurely aging and, and prematurely going gray? No. That's a symbol of Dignity. And wisdom, and all the old people who still had their white hair said amen. And his eyes were like flames of fire, able to pierce to the very inner of our soul. He sees, and he cuts through all the lies and the deception, and he knows everything. And his feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. He stood strong and stable because he had been through the oppression and been through the attack of the enemy and withstood it and had been refined. And he stood strong. And going on, his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. His voice a moment ago sounded like a trumpet. Now it sounds like the mighty waves crashing against the rocky shores of Patmos, the exile island where John is. You just hear these ocean waves just crashing in. And his voice sounds like that, a voice of authority. And he held seven stars in his right hand again, a reference to the churches, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. Is this literal? Does Jesus have eyes that are on fire and a sword sticking out of his mouth? No, we read it naturally. It's like Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword able to pierce to the very soul of us. The word of God, he judges rightly with justice and fairness. In his face, was like the sun in all its brilliance. John is giving us this picture of Jesus to pique your curiosity, to get you dreaming, to to get your imagination rolling, to say, here he is. He's more magnificent than you can even imagine. This Jesus who's here, standing in the midst of our church, standing with us, is worthy of praise, worthy of honor, worthy of worship. He's incredible. We can't even look upon his face. He's so magnificent. He's better than the best picture we can even dream up of him. Wow. John's just standing there. He just wants us to have this this awe factor, this wow. He, He gives us this picture. The heartbeat of Revelation, friends, get this. This is the heartbeat of Revelation. Why? Because... It's to help us get a clear vision of Jesus. Like this is the way revelation begins because everything else hinges on this. That we gotta see Jesus for who he is accurately and get a clearer vision of him. See, John and his readers needed a, a clearer picture of Jesus. We need a clearer picture of Jesus. Which begs the question how big is your picture of Jesus? How big is your picture? Jesus. In my line of work, I discovered that people usually have like half a picture of Jesus. We get him as the the tender, compassionate Savior, that he died for me, that he rose for me, that he wants to save me, and he is, he totally is, for certain he is. He even tells us in verse 5, next slide. He says, all glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. We get this beautiful picture of Jesus as the one who sacrificed for us. The problem is that's not the only picture of Jesus. See, some of you only have the picture of Jesus as the slain and slaughtered lamb. But you forget that he's also the reigning lion, that he is the fearsome God, the warrior king, who demands our allegiance and deserves our worship. See, Jesus also tells us this, that that he is the fearsome one. He says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, and the one who holds it all in between. I'm the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. I am the Almighty One. There's this fearsome picture of Jesus we see here in Revelation. And we cannot miss that, that he is not just the tender, compassionate Savior. He is the fearsome warrior leader. Now, some of you, that's the only picture of Jesus. Yeah, you, you have this Jesus who's just fearsome, and you're afraid of him. Like, I I don't know, I don't know. Listen, if you've only ever seen Jesus as the fearsome one, you need to know that the fearsome one is for you, that he loves you, that that he is the tender Savior who saves you. But some of you, you, you cling to him as tender Savior, but you have this truncated picture of Jesus that you don't allow him to lead. And if you don't allow him to lead, he can't really save He's both. He's both. He is the fearsome one who has fought for us and won. That's who he is. And so when John sees this fearsome picture of Jesus, he does what any of us would do. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Get this, John knows Jesus. They were friends. They would hung out. They were best friends. He saw Jesus die. And then on Easter evening... 60 years before this, John's hiding out in a room afraid for his life because they killed his savior, they killed his friend, and they killed his friend, and now what's gonna happen to him, and now the body's missing, what's gonna happen? And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in this room where John and the others are hanging out. It's what we talked about last week. And John was there, and he's like, I think that's a ghost, I think that's a vision. It looks like Jesus, but Jesus is dead, he's gone. And he's trying to make sense. Jesus says, No, 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 look. Put your hands here, my hands, my feet, my side, it's me. And John got this vision of Jesus. And so here, Jesus is doing the same thing. He says, John, it's me. You remember me. See me. But see me in my glory. And then notice what Jesus does. John's down as though he's dead to worship him. But Jesus laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. Friends, that's just a good word for us as we approach Revelation. If you are fearful of the of the things in Revelation, you're fearful of what's to come, you're fearful of anything in this world, listen to Jesus' words right here. Don't be afraid. You are his. You are his church. You are his people. You're his beloved. You need not fear. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever. So John, I want you to write this stuff down. I hold the keys of death and the grave. Anything that you face, even the worst of the worst, even if you're facing death, don't forget, I I own those keys. I defeated death. I defeated the enemy. I win in the end. And if you're with me, you win too. You need not fear. So I want you to write down what you've seen. What you see of me, and both the things that are happening right now and the stuff that's going to happen. I want you to write this revelation down. But Friends, you got to understand this. If we don't see this picture of Jesus, no other part of revelation makes sense. The whole thing unfolds from this picture of Jesus. And here's why. Because we need to see a picture of Jesus. John needed to see a picture of Jesus. The early church needed to see a picture of Jesus. Because there's so much to fear in this world. So many things that come at us. All of our trials and our temptations and our problems and the persecutions and all the evil that comes at us and all the craziness of this world. And Jesus says, listen, there's so much to fear. But if, if you trust me, if you put your hope in me, if you will cling allegiance to me, then you need not fear anything. If you would cling and hold allegiance to the fearsome one, then you need not fear anything or anyone else. That's the message of Revelation. That's the message of Jesus. And church, we should get an amen to that. That's our truth. That's our hope. That if we acknowledge that he's the fearsome one who has fought for us and died for us and rose from the grave by his power and he reigns now and forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and he's the one who holds the keys to death you have nothing to fear he's for you and he stands right here in your midst church he's for you the fearsome one has fought for you and won. and if you're with him you win too man that's good news i get a little worked up on that one So here we go. Here's what we need. The only way we're going to see what God wants us to see is when we see Jesus for who he is, when we see him clearly. The only way we're going to see what God wants us to see about ourselves and other people and the ways of this world and the circumstances and the problems and all the stuff that we'll face, the only way we're going to see that the way God wants us to see it is when we see Jesus first. So church, is your Jesus bigger in your problems? Or have you allowed your problems to overshadow your picture of Jesus? If if your problems are bigger than Jesus, you're missing it. You just just don't get how big Jesus is. So here in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to pray and then we're going to sing and we're going to worship. And I want you to make the song we're going to sing your prayers to. And we're going to do something because Revelation is just filled with imagery. And so I'm going to ask us to take some of that symbolism and take some of that imagery. And you all know what this means, right? If, If somebody's in war and all of a sudden their hands go up, what does this mean? Surrender. You got it. They surrender. If you have never surrendered to the fearsome one who has fought for you, maybe you've only acknowledged him as Savior, but you've never really followed his lead, or you've just been terrified of him because somehow, God, you're just afraid of him. Listen, take him as both Savior and leader and surrender to him. You surrender to him today. If you know that you need him as Savior and you're willing to follow him as Lord and leader, that's that's everything you need to say, man, I'm, I'm in. That's where it begins. And we'll get we'll you in the water after the service. And if you've done that, if you've already raised your hands and surrendered, and you follow him, you acknowledge that he is leader and savior, and then you need to raise your hands in a very different way. Anybody ever run a race and see what happens when they come across the finish line this way? What does this mean? Victory. There are a few times in life where I got to win a race and my hands went up because it was abnormal for me. Man, I'm going to claim that when my hands were high. Victory. There were times when I finished race, I ran a marathon once. I was two hours behind the people who won it. I put my hands up anyway because victory was crossing the line. All right. Some of you are just like, I don't have to win. I'm just crossing the line with Jesus. You get those hands up. So when we sing today, I want you to raise your hands. There's not a hand in this room that shouldn't be up. Either your hands are up because you know you need to surrender, or your hands are up because you already have, and you know you get to claim the victory that we have in Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we'll stand and sing. Jesus, we thank you that you are the fearsome one who reigns now and forever, who holds all of it together. And the big picture is that you win and evil loses, and those who side with you get to win with you. And so we have nothing to fear. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We thank you that in you there is no fear. And so for any who have not claimed that yet, God, we pray that today they would determine, they would put their hands up and surrender and acknowledge you as both Lord and Savior. And God, for those of us who have, may we live our lives to demonstrate it, not cowering in fear and not blending into the ways of this world around us, but living boldly and proclaiming your truth and your love for a lost and hopeless world. God, thank you for the hope we have in your word and your revelation. It's in Jesus we pray, amen. Church, let's stand, let's sing, and let's raise our hands.